When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's right, everybody. We are back, and this is episode 182, helping junior developers break in with none other than Alex Booker, the host of the Scrimba podcast, actually. So this sounds interesting to you, because it should, and you want to support the show, you can go check us out on that Patreon, leave a review or rating on your podcast app, join us in our Discord server, or share this with your friends. And just a brief introduction before we cut to that call, Alex Booker is the host of the Scrimba podcast. He started his self-taught career as a developer and transitioned quickly to developer advocacy with multiple companies. Alex uses his experience breaking into the industry to help others do the same. His podcast focuses on interviewing junior devs that have just broken in, as well as industry leaders to give listeners a wide spectrum of information to help with their journey. Let's cut to that call right now. Alrighty, everyone, we have Alex on the line here. Before we jump into this loaded episode, Alex, what's up? How's it going? What are you working on? How's your COVID life doing? And uh, what's going on? Hey, Matt. Well, it's a pleasure to meet you, first of all. I've, I've listened a lot to the podcast, and I have to say, you're, you're a bit of an enigma, so it's a pleasure to get to <laughs> meet you here on the Zoom call. And Mike, obviously, you and I have connected a few times doing things like Twitter Spaces, and you've actually been on my podcast, the Scrimba podcast, recently as well, so very excited to be here. What can I say? Things are going pretty good, actually. I'm quite happy these days, feeling very productive. I'm doing a lot, I think, to help new developers break into tech, right? Like doing a weekly video, a weekly Twitter space, a weekly podcast. It's hard work and uh, making sure I, making sure I make time to sort of enjoy life as well. I, I live in London, so there's a lot to do when it comes to like theaters and sightseeing and walks and things like that. So yeah, I think I've got a good balance going on right now. It's a good time to be alive for me personally. Damn it's one of balance. those... <laughs> I was about to say, it's one of those things that, that that's a true struggle, right? You think that podcasts and stuff like that are easy to do, but you know, once you, once you get into it, it's like, whoa, like we have to actually make the episode, get the show notes, get the prep, actually have the episode and then make sure the episode's entertaining, that type of thing. And then you're also doing a Google or a yeah, Twitter space. So, you know, that, that's a whole other thing. And then, you know, it, it's, it's always difficult to balance and, and, and especially even with, especially in the podcast world, for sure. Oh, yeah. It's so easy to underestimate. You listen to a 60-minute podcast and you think, ah, that's like 60 minutes to make. You've got so many more hours in the day, but you don't see what's happening behind the scenes. And, and one reason why I know people listening appreciate you too, because you're scheduling people to come on the episode. You're editing the episodes down, making sure they're entertaining and there's no audio issues. And then obviously creating the show notes. And then you, know, you have to promote the podcast to like justify its existence, basically. And that takes its toll as well. There's a lot going into it behind the scenes. Absolutely. Yeah, it's honestly, it's great having other podcast hosts on. I think uh, we, we've had a couple on before, uh, but not directly in our field. So you're the first one in the web development field. And uh, we really appreciate you coming on, Alex. Um, but what I want to kind of get started with right right off the bat is your your story a little bit. So we've, we've introduced you so people know you're from Scrimba, you got the Scrimba podcast. But what's your story in in terms of breaking into junior development? Because we're going to be talking a lot about how 
how we're helping, how you're helping, how we're trying to help and, and the struggles. But I think it's important for people to hear different stories of, of breaking in because, again, it, we, we've talked about this before. Almost everyone's story is different. That, that's absolutely right. Um, I think there's some commonalities in the struggles and things like that, but we're all different people coming from different places and usually we have slightly different goals. In my case, I can say that in a way, I was quite fortunate to realize that I wanted to be a developer from a younger age. I think I was about 16, 17 dabbling with computers before I realized, hey, you know, programming is the thing I can make a career out of and that can earn me a good living. And who knows, maybe I get lucky and code an app that becomes the next Facebook or something. That's why I used to think that the potential in this industry is endless. However, I was really bad at school, guys. Like I was so bad at school. I just couldn't focus. I couldn't really do maths and things because I didn't really see the output of my efforts. It wasn't fueling my creativity in any sense. So you can imagine when programming came along, it was very satisfying to see the outputs. But because of my bad grades, I couldn't really go to university. There was a path there for me if I really wanted it. I could have really pushed myself and forced myself to do things I didn't want to do or wouldn't come naturally to me due to the way my brain works. And I'm sure I could have got there. But I realized if the path there was so difficult, probably it wouldn't be conducive to me once I got there. Meanwhile, I learned about these, you know, YouTube videos, not just any YouTube videos, but even back then, places like Harvard were uploading their programming methodology courses and Stanford as well um, on YouTube. And I could go to school and say, hey, you know what? I'm in this small village in Wales, but I'm learning from a Stanford professor. And, and you know what? I learned better from them. And it sort of unlocked this idea in my brain that, you know, your teacher has to resonate with you. And when you come from a small place, you don't really have that many options. Frankly, when you get into school, you don't really choose your teachers usually, or they might surprise you because in an open day, for example, like we have in England where you get to trial the class, they might perform really well, but then they don't have the endurance to mentor you and support you the way you need. And that sort of opened my mind to the fact that you can learn to code online. And from there, I sort of devoured everything from plural sites at the time to various YouTube videos, books, and so on. But, but the biggest challenge, honestly, was that I didn't know what to learn. I sort of opened a book and I thought, okay, if I read this book cover to cover, I will be the best programmer. But, but no, I became very good at regurgitating facts about a compiler or understanding nuances of a language. It was kind of fun to learn, right? But it wasn't really bringing me closer to my objective, which, which in my case, by the way, was to move from a small village where I grew up and everybody knows everybody and everybody talks about everybody, not necessarily about ideas and events. And I, and I wanted to move to the city, which in itself was, was scary. I wanted to move to London. And that's when I started to get a sense of like, right, I need to learn hireable skills. And so that led me down the path of learning more database technologies than language features, for example, because every app needed a database. Along the way, I realized, well, okay, no one really builds software by themselves. Like you're always working in a team. So maybe I need to be a good team player. I wish my thought process was so clear. I wish I had that clarity at the time, but the truth is I was very much sort of struggling through it. And so a lot of what I do now is, and with Scrimber as well, with whom I have the full support, is I, I really try and create the content that I wish I had back then. And as you, if you listen to my podcast or my spaces or the YouTube videos, I don't really talk about the coding skills because I honestly think across the board, there are some amazing people doing a very good job at that. I think where the gap still exists in some sense is like that, you know, career counselor type person who gives you ideas about where to go, you know, practical advice about how to do it. And of course, inspiration, because even though I knew it was possible to get into the industry without a computer science degree, it didn't always feel that way. 
away. Like maybe, maybe I wasn't going to do it. You know, there was no guarantee of success. And at times I really regretted my decision when I saw my friends who'd gone to university, either enjoying parties or girls or like, you know, obviously, I mean, okay, I really missed the social aspect of it. That stood out to me. I do think there's merit in university, um, but I was also missing like the mentorship and things like that. And I wondered if I'd made the wrong decision. Um, but lo and behold, through a few tactics, which I could, you know, gladly dive into later, if you'd like me to, I managed to find that one opportunity and, and succeed and get that first job. And, and often you'll hear people say things like, you know, getting that first job is the hardest thing. There's an element in truth to that, but I don't think it's necessarily to do with the market. Some people say like, oh, if you've got one job on your resume, that will change everything. For me, at least it was about believing in myself. Like, oh my God, I, I can do this. I can do it again. And if I can do it and on the podcast, I've interviewed many of them as well. I know somebody listening today can do it as well. And that's why I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I, I, th I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head and you, you've, you've given a really important path for people to hear because, again, there, there is a million different paths. So university, non-university, college uh, programs, that's all a, a valid path. But there's also very much so the, the self-taught path uh, that we kind of talk about a lot. And you're kind of evidence that it works. Now, in no way is it easy. In no way is there any guarantees, but there are ways to kind of get into the industry throughout with your, your own kind of sense, your own knowledge and your own drive, right? That's really the, the key in the self-taught path is that it's yourself that is driving you. There's no structure. Like you said, like what's to learn? Like, well, how do you learn? You go in, you dive in and there's zero. We're going to talk about this a little bit down the line, but, um, we, we kind of both did a developer roadmap and we talked about it on your podcast, in fact, about the roadmaps right. in general. But really, like even a roadmap isn't a perfect path. It's not a perfect place from point A to point B. So when you're diving in, it's very difficult to find it, but it's important to try it, stick to something and keep going through like one step at a time. And as you start learning and as you start opening up those pages, I feel like you're going to get some clarity into what's next. That's the important thing is like, stop looking 10 steps ahead, look at one step, find the right first step. And I think there's plenty of uh, advice out there, plenty of those roadmaps where you can easily find that there's common first steps for anyone going into the development. And that will kind of dictate your next step after that. So it's really important. I think you kind of nailed it there with how, how you broke in that you you eventually did find that first step, but it wasn't clear, like in no way, shape or form. Now looking back on it, you understand. But when you're in it, it was like a muddy mess. And but eventually you kind of broke in. So if you're in that muddy mess right now and you're listening to this, just know that it does clear up. You just have to kind of wade through the mud. It's um, it's funny you mention a muddy mess because I have this idea I like to share, which is that many of us, when we try and think about our career and our path towards a goal, we, we try and be architects about it. Like we're so particular. We want to make all the right decisions for fear the whole thing might collapse. But but generally a much better philosophy is to, and this is the muddy part, is to, to be more like an archaeologist and sort of go in a few different areas, dig around, see what you find, remain principled and diligent, right? Always consider your goal and what you're trying to achieve. And if the place you're digging doesn't really work for you for whatever reason, or you feel like you've excavated everything you needed to, you know, now, now's your time to move on. And yes, these roadmaps, these checklists, they can give you a good indication about where to go next. I, I strongly encourage anybody listening, and I, it might sound like a broken record, is always to think about your goal, because without a goal, you can't score, right? As cliche as that sounds. But the real point I'm getting at is that if you're trying to, for example, become a professional junior developer, and maybe that's to do with changing your lifestyle and building a better sort of work-life balance or situation for your family, or 
or just finding more fulfillment in your career say, you know, you don't necessarily want to finish the roadmap because there isn't a job at the end of the roadmap. Like roadmap implies you're going somewhere, right? Like there's a destination at the end, a specific destination. But as we've already touched on, everybody's a little bit different. Everybody's coming from a different place with a different goal. But when you go on job boards, say, say LinkedIn, but also career boards and things like that, scrapers, and you look at the job requirements for that particular role, you know, find a few that you think, damn, I would actually like to work here. Don't worry about if you're qualified necessarily because you're cultivating something of a roadmap or a direction. You're not meant to be there yet, but you think, damn, I love the look of this kind of team. I love the sound of these kind of perks and their work-life balance and their attitude towards their employees. Well, damn, that's a really interesting space. And who knows, maybe the space is something to do with, you know, a previous career experience you've had or a previous interest. And then you have an opportunity to like parlay or transfer that domain knowledge, essentially. Maybe you just find that the tech stack resonates with you like a drum, like, damn, this stuff's cool. You know, this is the path to success. But point being, when you look at those job ads in your local area or wherever you choose to work, you, you are pretty much ensuring that you're learning the right things because you're now on a path towards that specific destination and not just fumbling around um, trying out different roadmaps, which aren't always the most considerate, as you know. I know, Mike, that you and uh, Matt have done like a really good one on your podcast. And likewise, we spoke a little bit about it on the Scrimba podcast, but we provided a ton of caveats, didn't we, about how there are so many different approaches to success. Yeah, exactly. I think I think that's the that's the key is like the, there's tons of caveats, but I think your idea of architect versus archaeologist is a really interesting one, and it's I think it is really important that you kind of weigh through and find the right path for you, as well as your idea. Actually, the the advice that you just gave, which is a really good advice, is finding that job that you want and basing maybe your roadmap or your learning on the job that you want. Now, there, I would say that there is a little bit of a catch there where. Um, when you're first getting into it, you might not know what you want. Like if you want a job at Google, for instance, like there's million, there's hundreds and hundreds or thousands of jobs at Google. So it might be really difficult to kind of narrow down uh, what you would want to do. But I think regardless, finding that starting point or at least a direction doesn't mean you're going to directly go there maybe, but it is a, at least a starting point for you to start striving. And then a- again, as you wade through, I think the clarity will come and you can adjust where you want to go from there. So I think it's it's still really really good advice. It's still really key uh, to to kind of try to do that because it will for sure at least get you the motivation and get you the the direction at the very beginning. I was going to ask. I was actually going to jump in and ask too briefly there. Um, what do you do if your sort of grand ideas don't don't wane? They don't go away. So you had mentioned Alex that you know you. Just like many of us, I'm sure it's like, hey, you know, I'll, I'll learn these coding skills and then I'll make some sort of app and maybe it'll be at the same level of Facebook or maybe it'll be at the same level as one of these sort of breakout, you know, at this point, cultural phenomenon things. Uh, and then, you know, I guess sort of reality sets in and it's like, well, you know, there's hundreds of apps or I guess thousands or hundreds of thousands of apps, whatever the number is out there. And, you know, there's three or four different social media networks that have really shown like caught on and there's only a certain amount of games that have certainly caught on. And so, you know, I'll have to sort of hone my skills. Like you said, build your team building skills, find some hireable skills. But like what I, I guess like one thing I, I would be, I would struggle with is what, what happens if that, if that sort of grand vision in the beginning doesn't lessen, it doesn't go away. And do you continue to want to do these grand things? Do you keep shooting for that? Like if that's your roadmap, do you just try to make money in the interim? And because like you wouldn't want to like step on your own, your own dream if you're really trying to get someplace. 
even if there's only like a 2% chance uh, of you making it there, you know, how do you navigate this world as effectively a junior developer with this grand idea? Do you, do you do the hireable skills thing? Do you become a freelancer? Like how do you navigate maintaining this, this grand idea? This is a really hard hitting question, I think. And I, I know your listeners appreciate you for asking the hard questions. I, I would answer in two parts, I think. I, I want to go back to the very beginning about how I said, you know, I'm quite happy these days. I, I want to point out that I'm happy for all of the decisions I've made and the goals I've achieved, but I'm also happy for the goals I haven't achieved or the failures I've made. Because at one point you end up where you're meant to be or where you want to be. And, and you realize that actually you couldn't have been there if you took every opportunity that ever came your way. You would have gone in a completely different branch in life, right? In terms of like your tech career specifically and aspiring to work at various companies, I, I think two things, like maybe your goal like doesn't change exactly. Like you have a certain aspiration, but I would argue that you need to break your goal down a little bit. Like if your goal is to work at Google, maybe it's useful to ask, you know, why you want to work at Google. Is it the prestige? Is it the salary? Is it that you want to solve hard problems? Is it that you want to work with the best engineers? Well, when you break the goal down, you realize that actually it's a problem. Like you want to find yourself in a position. You want to solve that problem by putting yourself in a position where you meet that criteria. And just like any coder will tell you, there's multiple ways to skin a cat. There's multiple ways to solve a problem. And so I think a skill that most people need to wrap their head around is this idea of having a little bit of flexibility and sort of controlling your perspective a little bit to realize that you are still successful, even if your specific destination is a little bit different. Maybe you aspired your whole life. And by the way, I, it's hard to really know who is exactly listening. Um, I, I'm 26, by the way. And I think that in the last few years, especially, a lot of my goals have changed as I've, I've learned more about myself. I do imagine that some people will be further along and have a, a more firm understanding of who they are and what they want. Um, um, but it's kind of true that silly quote people say, which is like, you know, the book doesn't change, but you do. Like you can't help just through living, I think, to gain new perspectives and new ideas. And when you listen to a podcast episode or you read an article or you respond to economic things happening in the world as they are a lot nowadays uh, in light of the pandemic, you realize that there are lots of different paths to success. If you, if you are a new developer and you're looking for that path to success, the way I like to think about it is like building a pyramid. Say your destination is the pinnacle, right? You can't just build the pinnacle without a foundation. The whole thing would collapse and it would look a bit pathetic, right? Just building the tip of the pyramid without a grand base. And so I'd strongly encourage people to think about building a strong foundation. What, what does that look like practically? Well, generally, if you're thinking about becoming a web developer, that's going to look like the typical skills you've heard of before, the coding skills, right? The JavaScript, the HTML, the CSS, but it's also going to be more of the programming side, which is you know thinking logically, considering edge cases to come up with correct and efficient instructions and having an awareness of the sort of data structures and patterns available to you to utilize as you build your solutions. The, the next thing, frankly, if you have such a grand ambition is there is going to be a lot of context there, like a lot of domain context or domain knowledge, I guess. Like what it takes to work at a company like Google is very different than what it takes to work at an ambitious, fast-growing startup. You need to be able to work in huge teams. You need to be okay with having a little bit less autonomy. For example, there's going to be a slightly different etiquette. The path to get into those companies is going to be a little bit different. I personally found my wheelhouse, which is startups, and I think I know how to navigate them and deliver value quite well nowadays. But take it from me, if I tried to break into Fang, I'd be at the beginning of a whole new path, I think. Maybe I'd 
maybe I'd have some advantage from doing the Scrimba podcast and things and hanging out with really cool, ambitious people on, on Twitter. But the point I'm guessing at ultimately is that you need to sort of figure out, in addition to the hard skills, some of the soft skills that are going to enable you to find success, like how to network, how to navigate the job industry, how to put your best foot forward in an interview, how to market and advertise yourself. And so if we visualize this pyramid, right, we're not even really at the pinnacle yet. We're talking about the first few layers of foundation. But at the end of the day, once you have this foundation, you now have so many options, right, to, to meet that checklist I set out at the beginning. You know, when you think what you specifically want from the job, it gives you options. And it puts you in a powerful position to choose what you want to do next, no matter what the circumstances might be. Maybe, you know, you don't want to be seven months into your journey and realize, damn it, I really hate these kind of jobs. Like, this isn't what I want to do after all. Um, and, and frankly, you'd always be in a better position if you had the right predicate and the right foundation anyway. So in short, I would say focus on the foundations, trust the process. And in the end, I'm very confident you'll end up somewhere you want to be. And you won't regret sort of, you won't thank yourself for belaboring every microscopic decision about what path or branch to take. Instead, you'll look at the whole thing and feel thankful you took exactly the path you took because that's how you ended up where you are right now. Alex, I think you've given a lot of really good advice here because again, it's the foundation, it's the it's the soft skills. Um, there's a lot there's a lot to take from that. I'm just wondering, you you've interviewed a lot of junior developers. I mean, Scrimba is very focused on that, so you've had the opportunity to be like very you know niche down into the junior side of things or the people that are skilling up. Um, I'm wondering if there's a piece of advice that you could give that would help all junior developers or do you think that there isn't something like that that kind of exists and it has to be a case by case basis? So I, I'm, I'm curious to see that because I know I noticed that a lot of a lot of advice on Twitter, a lot of advice here, a lot of advice on like blog posts. It is very generalized. But on the other hand, like I don't know if it applies to everyone. So I'm curious your take on that. Hmm. Let me think for a second. Mm -hmm. I would say. Drink your water. I think that applies to everybody, certainly. <laughs> but in terms of coding advice specifically, and, and, and you're talking specifically about how to find success in your career, right? I'm talking specifically like breaking into the breaking yeah, in as a junior yeah. developer more I than anything. Something. And it doesn't have to be like even coding related. It's more, I, I, I was thinking more of a soft skill advice too. Absolutely. I, I think I have a, an answer for you, which is to, to my advice would be to consider marketing yourself, which sounds like a bit of a dirty word, maybe. I don't know what the connotation is nowadays. I'm so far, it used to feel dirty to me as a developer. I was like, oh, I grumbled. I don't like marketers. I don't want to be associated with marketers. After plastering so many company logos on my laptop one year, I, I, I thought, <laughs> well, I thought maybe I don't hate marketing as much as I, I thought I did anyway. Um, but but the truth is like, and, and there is this, um, there's a book by this title. I've not read it admittedly, admittedly, um, but it's a common idea that you can be so good, they can't ignore you. Well, well, actually, that's not really true. Like, you need to be pretty good, obviously. Like, we should never try and uh, tone down the, the skills necessary to find success. I don't think we should cheapen that. I don't think we should set the wrong expectation. It is challenging to become a developer no, no matter what. But the truth is, if you have the skills, but nobody else knows about them, you're not really putting yourself in a very good position for success. And what that effectively has to do with is, is communication, right? Like it could be written communication on your LinkedIn profile or your resume. It's a little bit to do with like amplifying that presence as well. Like how do you get people to click your profile? Maybe it's with a well thought out LinkedIn message, right? Or it could be because you build an audience on a different platform, but I wouldn't really worry about that very much as a new developer, by the way. It's very easy to think that you have to or should build an audience. Like that's going to help you find success. It really doesn't. Having a support network 
does, but building an audience is not necessary at all. There might be some benefits, right? But it, but it's not the main thing. And then of course, you know, once you've actually got your foot in the door, you're not done. Like you're not done selling yourself. I'm sorry. Like you need to consider that you're marketing yourself and selling yourself through every step of the funnel, essentially, because in some sense, like every employer has a certain risk aversion. Like they, they don't want to take the a bad choice on someone because it can be far more costly to the business. It's bad for their rep- reputation potentially, right? If they've hired someone who wasn't a good fit for the team, maybe they will be resented within the company. Maybe they find it harder to find buying in the future and things like that. You really want to communicate why you think you're going to be a really positive, safe bat within this company. And that comes down to two things, right? Like your actual programming ability and then your ability to, to work well within a team. And so I wouldn't scoff at marketing if that's still a thing. I don't know. What's your impression? Like, I, I feel like this used to be said a lot, but it doesn't come up as much nowadays. I think maybe people are starting to understand there's a necessary balance there. Yeah. Personally, I I personally struggle with this. Like you said, I, I'm kind of an enigma. Sometimes I kind of disappear and, and I just... I, I don't know. Well, I know what it is. I don't know where it, maybe you don't know where it comes from, but I feel as though it's disingenuous to market myself in a way. And I think mm. it comes from the, the idea that, uh, and this isn't like true, but when people present something, so let's just say Mike is uh, working independently on something. I have no idea what he's working on. And then he comes out and he says, I have this brand new, uh, you know, podcast, uh, hosting service and, you know, look at all these features, look at all this stuff. But it's, it, it's presented in such a way that, you know, is, it looks very, uh, you know, complete and done. And, uh, you know, it's feature, feature rich. And so I'll look at it and be like, well, geez, like if I were to do this, this would just be a disaster. It would be, you know, maybe I'd come up with the same, uh, the same service and the same, the same like ideas, but behind the scenes in my, in my head, cause I'm thinking about, okay, how would I build this? I would have this total disaster, uh, you know, basically like a, like we're putting up a nice marketing poster, but behind the scenes, everything's on fire. And I, and I realized that everything, like everyone has that, like everyone's sort of, um, Background tasks are very hectic and very crazy. And, uh, I've heard the sort of analogy, I suppose, where it's like when you put on a play, don't go behind the scenes because it breaks that, uh, it breaks that illusion that everything is calm, cool, collected and ready to go. Everyone's running around. People are trying to fix lights and, you know, fix costumes and stuff like this. But then when you step out onto that stage, it's, it's well put together. And so all that chaos leads you to this one sort of produced thing. But for whatever reason, I can't personally get through that, that part where I feel like, well, you know, maybe I should share, like, I kind of want to be more organic, I guess, like I'll I'll flip flop. So I'll be like, well, I could be more organic and share all the chaos that's happened, you know, the, the weirdest thing ever, this weird DNS record, or I changed this weird DNS record and the name start, st- stopped resolving, but I wasn't even changing a record in that regard. Like what's going on and all the little chaotic, weird things that happen. Um, it, it, I feel bizarre sharing the, the finished product because I just feel like it's disingenuous or I feel as though the people that are sharing their sort of polished section of their project, like, Hey, like Mike's thing. Hey, I released this, this podcast service. Um, I feel as though it's like, well, Mike has it all put together. Mine would be a disaster. I'm not going to, I'm not going to share my project. It's a weird mental block, I suppose, in my own, like for my own personal thing, but that's how I feel about it. 
Um, and also I didn't, and like Mike didn't either, but we didn't grow up with social media. So I don't know whether that, cause people will tell me that that's a part of it and whether that is a, that is a piece where I'm like, why would I put that? Like, I don't run a blog like that. Like that was our social uh, media, you know, like I don't yeah. run a blog. Like I'm not going to write about this. Like, what do you mean? But then I'm like, well, I kind of <laughs> run a blog, I guess. Like it's, I don't know. It's a weird, it's weird. Right. Yeah. I, I struggle with something similar, to be honest. Like, I, I don't like to be disingenuous. It's the same reason why if somebody in a coding interview, like, or in a job interview, they, they would ask me something like, you know, what's your biggest weakness? Like, I, I would not be able to give a platitude, like, oh, I work too hard or something with a, with a straight face. I don't think that would be conducive anyway, but I'd probably feel quite like I, I want to, or like, they ask me, tell me about the time you resolve the conflict at the workspace or something. You know, I'd find it really hard to like flower up an answer that, uh, but but I also recognize it's a bit of a necessity. And what is important, however, to me personally, maybe to you and maybe to people listening, is just to remain genuine to who I am. Like people are always going to pass an opinion about you, right? And they might question your intention or they might wonder about who you are and what you're getting out of something. But I know exactly what I'm doing. Like I know exactly what I'm doing. I know I'm going to deliver value. I know I'm an honest, hardworking person. I know that when I create content on social media, I'm doing it to help people. And let me let me say two things, because I think that the first kind of example you gave was to do with like companies and things and building products. You might have come across like Theranos, right? Like this uh, company out of Silicon Valley that really in Silicon Valley for years and decades, frankly, there's always been this balance of like showing a prototype, selling the dream and the vision with like band-aided together products. And this is how you get the funding to then go on and build the real thing. And, and Theranos was like the company that broke the broke the bubble in a sense, right? Or burst the bubble, I suppose, because they took it way too far and they defrauded investors. And recently the founders and the executives, Elizabeth Holmes and her, um, I, I think it's that her, her COO or something, they've both been like prosecuted and things. Like, I think that's a sort of like tone shift in, in Silicon Valley, which in a sense is like the, um, it, it kind of trickles down in a way because a lot of us are looking up to these huge like companies that came from came from the Valley and, and using that to influence our decisions. So, so that's an extreme example, but, but also as the Valley and product builders were sometimes thinking about building an MVP, which I think there's a huge room for in our in our world. Like an MVP is essentially something you build to test the hypothesis. It could be a sort of early version of the app. It could be band-aided together in a sense. But what you're really doing is you're trying to verify, like, will people use this thing? Is it worth building it out more? Is it worth building this podcast service out more? And, and can I build any traction? And, and the trouble comes, I think, when people present these things that look polished, but are actually falling apart behind the scenes. And Obviously, then if you if you came to me with a podcasting service, and obviously Mike, I like you, so I'd want to use your service and support your product. I might be like, oh, cool, I'll do it. But then if my podcast fails because the platform fails, like you know that's not fair, right? Because there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of um, undue pressure. Um, and, and I think this becomes especially true for like software as a service businesses. Like, say you use an authentication provider, and, and they're not, and they they kind of present this really polished version of their product, or you use a sort of communication API, and they present a really polished version of their product. But then, actually, behind the scenes, they're still growing, they're still figuring out some critical scaling issues. You're going to like face the burden of that, right? And, and I don't necessarily support that. I think you have to be quite honest with your customers. But I also do empathize, having worked with startups, that sometimes there is a balance to strike there. 
because if all you do, and this is true for anybody trying to become a new developer as well, like you don't have to, you, you can feel as though you're being disingenuous, but you don't have to highlight all the bad things about yourself either. <laughs> like you can present the truthful information and, and allow people to sort of dig, dig a bit deeper. Um, in terms of content creation, which I, if I understood you right, is where the second part of your sort of statement went. It, it's it's a little bit to do with like your, your ambition, I think. Like some people, and, and by the way, you know, I, I understand that you're not on Twitter necessarily or um, posting on Instagram, certainly. I, I may be connected with you on LinkedIn, I think. Um, but you're obviously creating this podcast week in and week out for the most part. And that's a hugely valuable resource to the community. Uh, and obviously it's a form of content, right? So you are creating that content. And then obviously you're working with Mike to, to promote it in things because Mike does some amazing things on Twitter. Um, but there's nothing like disingenuous about it. And I, I know you know this, right? Otherwise you, you wouldn't do it. But it, it's just the pattern, I think, which could be applied to other things, which is that you are creating an episode. You're putting in so much hard work and effort to bring on somebody who can hopefully influence the listener in a way that is genuinely positive to them. Like if the goal was different, right? If the goal was to like, you know, build a huge audience and then, you know, sell, you know, shell products and things like that, then, then that's a different thing, right? Maybe you should feel disingenuous, right? But I, I don't think that's the case there. And, and that's not to say that sponsors or anything are bad, right? Like sponsors help pay the bills and keep things going. Um, but obviously you'd want to endorse products that you actually believe in, right? Like you might not want to endorse one of those products that don't meet your values. Like the, the same things we spoke about really that are like, well, polished herds, basically, you want to work with companies you actually look up to and can be useful to your audience and find alignment there. I, I hope I answered that okay. I feel like it was a bit rambly. <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely. And it, I mean, I, I, I like you, you pointed something out, which is like, I do make a lot of weekly content. Like I'm, I'm actually even in another podcast, like this isn't just my only podcast and the other podcast has never made any money. Uh, and it's just purely for a hobby. And it's, we've been doing it for a better part of a decade now. So, um, yeah, like, I guess it, it's it, like what well, my overall, I guess my overall opinion of like the second part of your statement at, at the very least there is sort of like my marketing is sort of like just getting the content out there. But then it, it makes me think, hey, you know, I really should be marketing that content a little more, whether it be on LinkedIn or whether it be somewhere. It's sort of like I'm already doing the big part <laughs> and yeah, I'm yeah, like that- I'm hesitating with the hashtag or something like Oh man, I, I relate to that all too strongly because I, I have honestly one reason I have the the confidence sometimes, maybe even the gumption to like post in a subreddit or use a hashtag is that, you know, if I, I've lit like, and this is a little, little bit less, less relevant today with the work I'm doing at Scrimber um, and that we are obviously a business and we are obviously selling a course and there is an element of like supporting the community along with that. Like, like we're very principled and we have a very clear mission to help people break into tech. Our product's very affordable. I can talk a lot of affordable in the sense that it's accessible, right? So like we have this thing called uh, purchase power parity, where if you're in a country that has a sort of lower GDP, essentially, you know, the price is less kind of thing. There, there, are, there are lots of reasons I feel good about working at Scrimber. Um, but suffice it to say that I've been making YouTube videos for years and years and years. And I remember making YouTube videos that I just honestly did because I wanted to put my name out there a little bit as a new developer. And I thought about posting to Reddit and I thought, gosh, they're going to hate me. They're going to hate that I'm self-promoting. And then I was like, you know what? I spent 20 hours on this video. I deserve to promote it. Like, I think I've earned <laughs> enough good faith. And, and actually it was received better than I could have imagined. So there you go. Yeah. I, I think uh, a key thing here also is vulnerability, Matt. I think a lot of people connect with you and I get messages pretty often uh, like kind of directed at you, Matt, um, where people just connect with how you're feeling and what you're saying on the podcast. What you're saying on the podcast right now is is being very vulnerable. 
So if you transfer that over to any sort of social media platform, that's going to resonate with a lot of people. You, you have no idea because people listening to this right now, I guarantee you feel exactly the same way as you. Not everyone, but there's a group of people that just have a really hard time putting themselves out there. I was 100% one of those people you know, six months ago or whatever, whenever I started Twitter, I really didn't want to do it. And for the first, well, you know, Matt, but for the first month or so, or the first three weeks, I didn't really post much. I just interacted with people. Like I just literally chatted with people in the comments and that helped me understand what they were doing and how it's like how to kind of interact with people and be vulnerable at the same time. I think it's important to not only share your successes. I think it's important to share the struggles as you're going through. And I try to do that as much as I can. Obviously, share positives, like share your journey, share the the things that you have accomplished. But when you have struggles and when you have issues, even when it is with code, it's okay to put put that out there. Because again, there's people that will resonate with you and they'll either help you or it'll help them to kind of understand understand that they're not the only ones struggling with it. So it's a it's a really important thing that you're doing a lot of the time Matt that you I don't think you realize and I do get again I do get some responses from people that like very much resonate with you and I think you've honestly helped people move past the next step. So I think just knowing that Matt should maybe help you move past the next step as well because it really is about just taking one extra step and it's not about going too, too far into it. So going from, you know, not posting at all to then all of a sudden shilling stuff on Twitter isn't going to get you anywhere, but going from not posting at all to finding a group of people that you want to interact with and interacting with them. And that's it. That's all you're doing. Like who cares about the next step at that point? That's a a much more attainable goal and a much more realistic thing that could 100% help you break in. So again, this is all about helping developers break into the industry. It's important to go step by step through it and try to find that next step for yourself. So don't go into social media or audience building like Alex was saying, like you don't need to build an audience. That's not the goal here. The goal here is to find people in the industry right now that you want to be in and see what they're up to and see if you can help them and see if they can kind of, you know, symbiotically help you potentially so that's that should be your number one goal initially can i, can I quickly chime in yeah of course yeah i, I think we're sort of building on the, the the answer about my advice that applies to everybody about sort of marketing yourself and i feel as though you know say no excuse me sorry i've lost my train of thoughts please go ahead <laughs> matt well, I was just going to say, I was going to say, and, and, if, and if that thought comes to you, please interrupt me. But um, I was just going to say, that's a heck of a pep talk. You know, it's a good perspective because um, I just never think of it that way. Right. I'm always because if, if I'm on Twitter, like meaning I'm reading the tweets and stuff like that, it's a it's a different experience than than it's sort of what you're saying, where it's like, who cares about, you know, the almost like who cares about the follower count, you know, get your stuff out there, share it. And like I am doing a whole bunch of different stuff in the industry whether it be web development through gaming through whatever and so uh yeah it was a heck of a pep talk honestly um an interesting perspective and uh i know mike and i have talked about uh me trying some stuff on linkedin and stuff like that and obviously twitter in the past too so uh yeah i don't know new new perspectives new perspectives this week apparently (laughs) (laughs) love it um okay so again alex appreciate that answer there so let's move right on to the next one here uh so when you're talking to junior developers, 
that have broken in. And and again, Alex, you, you've interviewed a bunch on your podcast. You've had a lot of experience talking to them, uh, the ones that have just got their first job, essentially. Is there something common between them all? Like, do they have a different process? Do they have tenacity? Do they have a personality that kind of helps them break in? Or is it kind of just like a random roll of the dice? I'll be honest, like it's really two things. Like it's their ability to market themselves and their ability to sustain rejection for a bit until they find success. Yeah, that's a t- that's an interesting one. The sustained rejection to find success. I think that's really key because I've talked to a lot, a lot of junior developers that are kind of getting into that point where they have, you know, 10 interviews lined up over a span of a week. And obviously they're expecting a lot of rejection, but when you get rejection versus expecting it is a different thing. And uh, how you react to that is going to determine how high of a success rate you're going to have. Because right now, especially like, and Alex, I'm assuming you can attest to this. It's, it's difficult. Like it it is a a very competitive field. um, And there is going to be a lot of rejection. Having said that, there are people, and I know a few that have gotten their job on first or second interview. So it's not all, you know, doom and gloom, but you expect to have some sort of negatives, but you can always get the positive out of the negative. If you're rejected, you can for sure, you know, find what, find what you did wrong or learn from that experience and do something else. I think the issue comes in a lot with the rejection side of things as if you're rejected 20 times and you haven't changed your approach. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think yeah. if you, if you refuse to kind of alter your approach and you're continually getting rejected, that's when you need to start looking internally and looking at something else you can try to do. I mean, I think I've already used my cheesy quote slash platitude quota for this episode. Um, But another one is just that if you do the same thing and expect different results every time, that's the definition of insanity, right? I, I can only echo your point that when you're rejected, well, there's really two parts to it, I think. Like, it's true that the market can be competitive. And I have a bit of, uh, I spoke to a very interesting person and, and learned something I wouldn't mind sharing with you and your audience if you ask me about it after, Mike, just a little bit about the state of the job markets and things. Um, but at the end of the day, like, if you get rejected, it might not even really be anything to do with you. <laughs> like, it's easy to take it very personally. And at times it might actually, well, well maybe it feels that way. Maybe, maybe genuinely you just were not at the level they needed right then and there. But below me assure you, having been part of teams that are growing, that, that really there's like, you can't predict what the team, you interview with one hiring manager, say maybe a recruiter as well, and maybe you speak with a couple of developers on the team. You, you can't really, from that very short experience, especially over Zoom, get a sense for like the team dynamics and, and what kind of person would likely gel. Just because you're not that person doesn't mean you're a bad person, right? It just means you're a different person. Like maybe they've got a team of people who are very asynchronous and introverted. And if you're a bit more extroverted, say, and you're very um, gregarious as I am, by the way, it, it might mean that you would not be the best fit on that team. Equally, they could be looking for someone to, to fill that void as you could be a great person to like present on their behalf, you know, get the conversation and the discussion going and things like that. It's also true that hiring is really difficult for companies in general. Like it's not an easy thing. That's why it's a profession. That's why HR is a profession. That's why hiring is a profession. And of course, there are not only different levels within that, but we're talking about tech here where there's a lot of like esoteric terms and you know some nuances that are not easy to grok from the outside looking in right say you're a new recruiter or a new hiring manager working on a tech team for the, on a tech team for the first time and so honestly what happens sometimes is you know you get a lot of applications 
but you know maybe you get a fun your your, your sort of uh, budget within the team changes or maybe uh, someone's referred and for that reason they have to maybe they just found the candidate they were looking for and wanted to put the the rest on hold it's not necessarily a reflection of you right it's a little bit to do with like what's happening internally and at the end of the day if you're rejected it's easy to take it personally and i'm sure there are like personal rejections in this world right like things that are genuinely cause for upsets but when it comes to your career and it comes to interviewing and it comes to applying like it's it's actually an an, an invariable like it's invariable or, or um inevitable i mean like it will definitely happen and the thing is like the fear of doing it if you let that stop you that's the only real failure. Like it's not a failure to get rejected. The failure is not to even try because you're scared of getting rejected, in my opinion. So I think it's really forward. I think it's really important you push through that fear and apply anyway, even if you feel like you might not be ready. And when you do eventually get some rejection, because it will happen, it's happened to me, it's happened to you, I imagine, Mike, and you too, Matt, right? And uh, it doesn't when, when it doesn't break you, when it doesn't, and it's not really as bad as you, it sucks, right? It doesn't feel great. But when you realize that you can get back on the horse, you realize how strong you are and how much potential you, you really have. And the second thing, which I would just echo from you, Mike, is that, you know, rejection by itself can be a bit sucky. Like it's fairly, like it's not great, but if you can somehow solicit some feedback or a learning from that experience, then it was absolutely not for nothing. And to be honest, just by virtue of interviewing, you might, you know, go home that day or jump off the Zoom call and think, "Mm, I could have answered that better. Maybe I should have researched that more. Well, fine. Like that's a great thing to have learned. Like you learned that you need to improve that. You don't know what your weak spots are just out of nowhere. You sort of have to try a little bit and then you realize, and then that's an opportunity for you to improve. Moreover, you know, maybe in a few weeks, you get another job interview and you nail that question. And this is a better opportunity, but because you stumbled, you now have a really strong, sharp, compelling answer to to draw for. And this is a bit of an advanced tip. It won't always go your way. And it takes a bit of uh, gumption, I think, to pull this off. But if you do receive any kind of rejection, it is really positive, I think, to try and solicit some additional feedback and say, hey, you know, I would really love to get some feedback as to what I could have done differently to change the outcome, or what are some things you think I could improve to find success in the near future? Just, just one last point, since I'm, I'm sort of on a bit of a monologue, is that if you do, by the way, sort of get rejected or you don't find success the first time you apply or during the interview process, use your best judgment, obviously. Like you might find that it's just not a good mutual fit. And that's another thing, by the way, that they are evaluating you to see if you would fit in on their team. It's up to you in a sense to realize you have value to offer and you should feel like you're a good fit on the team as well to be happy and productive. Um, but in, in any case, if you feel like there's any chance of soliciting some additional feedback, you can send an email to the person who responded with your rejection, for example, and asked them. And you never know, like that could be the advice that like changes everything for you. I, I remember speaking to someone on the podcast, a newly hired developer, and they had an incredibly ambitious strategy where they applied to loads and loads and loads of companies. They, they were very nice to speak to. They were very humble. And, and she managed to solicit some good, useful feedback when one of the employers told her, you know, we just weren't convinced by the projects in your GitHub profile. We think that you should be using some more modern JavaScript, for example. Um, and, and by the way, this this advice isn't universal, right? There was probably other parts, but this is some feedback she got. And so at least she had something to act on now, something that would bring her closer to her goal. And so she revamped her projects and not many more weeks later, she found success that, that she was looking for. And I'm sure she doesn't think about those rejections anymore. I think she just enjoys her job and her newfound life. Yeah, the the rejections, the rejections come and go. And the other thing about with rejection is like, it's kind of a good practice. I mean, this, this is a little bit uh, negative or something like that, but it, it is going to happen even in the job um, in terms of ideas and stuff like that. Like I remember when I was first kind of uh, on, in, a, in a tech job and we were deciding on what tech to use, right? So we were, we were, we were doing the tech architecture part 
And I would, I brung up like five different technologies and all five were rejected. And that kind of stuck with me as well. And I think, again, because I was rejected before that, because I had gone through it, I was able to deal with it and kind of move on. And then I would still, you know, next time we had that meeting, I would still bring up some of my points. And eventually it did kind of stick. And some of my suggestions did stick until the point where I was able to, you know, make my own tech stacks and make my own projects. So it's important to kind of take some learnings from not only uh, what the what the reviewer says and stuff like that, but also the feelings that you get during that rejection, because it is something that will carry through probably throughout your industry. So it's something that once you get acquainted to and once you learn how to deal with it and get the positives out of it, you can carry through that kind of uh, throughout your entire career and your life, in fact. So with that, um, I think you, you were mentioning that you, you kind of you, you were talking to some of your uh, junior developers, and I'm sure that there's a lot of stories that stand out. You've kind of given a couple of them here. Uh, is there any other particular ones that stand out, like a story from a junior developer, maybe about the industry, maybe about their way to break in that could benefit our audience? It, it, it's kind of like asking a parent who their favorite kid is, right? <laughs> like it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to answer. Um, maybe I can give like a quick high level, quick fire, and, and you can tell me if any any story in particular stands out. Um, I'm thinking of Karan from Pune in India, who had only been coding for a year and a half, but they found a job ad that said, you know, don't apply really unless you have two or three years experience. It was a very firm requirement. They applied and literally the same day he did the final interview, they offered him <laughs> the job. So he got, he got hired on the spot. Can you imagine if he let that requirement sort of prevent him from moving forward? I, I mentioned, by the way, Anne-Marie, this is the Dutch woman who applied to a bunch of jobs and, and tweaked her approach based on feedback. The, the real key learning there is that she was not scared of rejection and actually turned it into an opportunity because she'd worked in a sort of service-based role where she would hop around contracts every three to six months. She knew that it wasn't personal. Like it was scary for her. She will tell you it was scary and it pushed her comfort zone, but she knew that it wasn't the end of the world. Like she'd seen it before. I also spoke with someone named Ellie from Australia recently who, believe it or not, and, and yeah, okay, this, this will sound a bit like a plug, I suppose, but, but they literally dropped out of their computer science degree to learn to code using Scrimba. And, and to be fair, it could have been really any platform, but the key sort of learning from her, I think, is that you know, she was on a path that wasn't working for her. She was learning about computer science concepts, but she wanted to be a designer and a web developer, and it wasn't serving her to, you know, pay tuition anymore and deal with the university and the bureaucracy and things. And so she took things into her own hands. I think that could be encouraging for anybody who's on, on the self-taught path. I, I've had some just incredible chats on the podcast, honestly. I, I spoke to someone named Anthony from Los Angeles, and there, there are two things that really stood out to me about Anthony. And the first one makes me a little bit sad, actually, because they, they told me about how like they were basically living with um, family. And you know he would, he would come home from working in finance, and his dad would be like, he'd feel it as hard. Like, he was sad because Anthony was sad. Like, he just was not enjoying his job. He didn't enjoy working in finance. It wasn't fulfilling to him. And so he started to, to learn to code and, and sort of use Scrimba in part to learn front-end web development. Um, but before, before Anthony could like find success, and he didn't just find success, by the way, he got a job at Activision, which is obviously a big deal, like an amazingly huge company with lots of opportunity. Um, his dad, unfortunately, passed away and didn't get to see him be successful. And that's something he like opened up to me about on the podcast, which, which I appreciated so much. And it, it just, you know, it, it really 
it reminds me sometimes it's not just about this, like, but in general, there are so many important reasons to learn to code and so many obstacles. And I really appreciate Anthony for their vulnerability because he persevered and, and now, but by the way, it's not only found success, but it's very interesting what he did because he decided instead of learning JavaScript in at great depth, he learned the basics, but he mostly focused and niched down on building email templates. So he learned that, you know, okay, HTML and CSS, better technologies, but what's the problem you're solving? Some people will build apps and grids and things like that. Other people will build landing pages. Other people will build email templates. And he realized that on Upwork in particular, this was a much less competitive space because not a lot of people had this idea. And so he managed to earn a few quid by freelancing on Upwork. And then when Activision reached out to him, because they actually reached out to him after he optimized his LinkedIn profile, they, they expressed that, hey, we actually, you know, emails are a big deal here. We do game launches, we have updates. You know, if we can improve our email conversion rate by a few percentages, that, that can actually lead to a lot more sales and success for our business. And from there, he sort of branched out and learned new things. But I thought it was a very cool example of sort of start niching down and then expanding, right? Um, and the last uh, sort of person that stands out to me is someone named Frederick, who genuine to God, and I, you know, I don't say this lightly, and I'm quite a, um, I wouldn't say I'm cynical, but I, I'm very careful to to not sell false expectations among the Scrimba audience and anybody listening. Learning to code is hard. And I think sometimes we read books and we see success stories, a little bit of survivorship bias where people talk about how they learn to code in 90 days, a little bit of marketing from boot camps as well. And it can be a bit disingenuous and not okay. So, so when I learned that Frederick had learned to code and got a job at a YC, a Y Combinator backed startup in 90 days, I kind of raised an eyebrow. I was like, hmm, let me dig into this a little bit more. But but the more I sort of, you know, probe, probed and asked, like it was a genuine story because he literally made it his, you know, life. Like he would wake up early. He would do a lot of studying in the morning. Um, then he would sort of let the information diffuse in the afternoons and listen to podcasts in the background and do a bit more practicing in the evening. I have to admit he had a few advantages and that his girlfriend was a software engineer and could help guide him and stuff like that. Maybe you don't have the same exact support, right? That's important to mention. So three months might be a really aggressive timeline, um, but it is very cool to like see a genuine example of someone who found success in a short period. And even if your circumstances are a bit different, like you may be more than likely your partner is not a developer, although maybe that didn't play as much of a role as they might assume. I just think it's important to caveat. Uh, or likewise, maybe you have other responsibilities like family or other jobs and things like that. It's still very cool to learn from like the specific tactics and, and sort of things that work for Frederick. And, and I would say in all these cases, and there are probably 10, 15 more interviews on the podcast, all, all these people did a tremendous job marketing themselves and highlighting their ability to develop it uh, to employers. Some people went the traditional application routes, um, but many, many people, and I think this is true when you don't have a degree, you have to get a bit creative sometimes and maybe look for that referral, maybe look for that connection within the company, maybe somehow solicit a company to come to you, right? By optimizing your LinkedIn profile. Um, I'm not sure if you want to dig into any of those specific stories or if like a quick fire high level overview is, is, uh, is enough, but they, they, they were certainly inspiring to me. Yeah, I think the rapid fire is exactly what I wanted, in fact, because I think, again, it's all about perspective and it's all about relatability for people because everyone's going through it differently. And the more people hear others going through different paths, the easier it is for them to believe that they can do it. 
That's a thing. Like, yes, that, that person could do it in three months. If you're in the, in the position at the same position as that person where you can spend, dedicate, you know, 12 hours a day or 10 hours a day to coding and you have the support system, you have the opportunity to do something similar. It might not be three months. It might, it might be more, but you have the chance, but you, you don't have to be in that position as well. Like you mentioned the other people, I'm sure that they took a longer, a longer path there. So maybe a year, maybe yeah. six months, whatever it was. It's just, it's really important to understand that there is no one size fits all in our industry. And you bringing up those stories and you mentioning the, you know, the different ways and the different paths and the different really technologies even that people are using to get in is something that I can see of huge value to, to our audience or to people, you know, also in that same spot. And not only in that same spot, there's some people listening to this that have a job and are looking to maybe switch jobs. It helps them understand where the new developers are coming from and how they can fit into the industry as well. So again, Alex, I really appreciate the, uh, the, the, you know, you bringing your experience and those stories to the table because we don't have a lot of uh, junior developers on our podcast. So I, I figured since we're going to have you on, we're going to take advantage of, uh, of your plethora of knowledge in that industry. So again, I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for saying so. It really, it really does mean a lot. And I, I'll, I'll add two more things just quickly, which is that it's very important to me. And it sometimes comes at the cost of my sleep, to be honest, like not always, but sometimes I, I've uploaded an episode every week for seven months. Like I, I really don't want to miss a week. And partly it's an intrinsic motivation. Like I, I feel good about it. Like I feel productive. I, I like what I'm doing, but I, I strongly feel, or at least I hypothesize and I hope that there's value in being there every week. Because when I was, you know, going back to the beginning of the episode, really, when I was learning to code, looking for that support, I, I, you know, it's a long path, right? It can take more than seven months to find success. In fact, it's quite typical to find more than seven months. You should curb your expectations in that sense, I think. And sort of just having something familiar and hopefully uplifting in the background is something I want to achieve for anybody learning to code. And then just secondly, I, I also speak with hiring managers and recruiters and senior devs, because to be honest, like it's fantastic and inspiring to hear from newly hired developers. Um, their stories are quite anecdotal, right? Like they're one of a few million developers in the world, right? Um, hiring managers aren't necessarily much better in the grand scheme of things, but I think their benefits, and, and I don't mean to talk about them like a resource or something, but the reason why they deliver so much value, I think, to our community by coming on the podcast is that they can talk about what they see from their perch, right? So someone who is often filtering through resumes or LinkedIn profiles or interviewing candidates, we can learn a lot from them by looking for patterns. And so that's something else we try and achieve as well. But, but again, thank you so much for the kind words. It really means a lot. Yeah, I could see that being a huge resource as well. And we've, we've had some hiring managers and stuff on as well. And I think I think it is a really valuable thing, but it's it's good to hear from both sides. That's, that's the key here. But moving on from um, kind of what helps juniors, what, something that I do want to talk about and, and something that we tried to do on this podcast is, again, provide a real outlook on the industry. So, again, you've talked to a lot of people. You're, you're seeing a lot of people go through the process of getting their first jobs and they're still doing it. Is there any negatives about the industry that people should be aware of? And I mean, you, we don't have to talk about all of them, but anything that particularly well, stands out for you? Yeah, I, I, I understand why you would ask, and I'm, and I'm happy to answer. I think it's important we talk about this as well. I, I just want to prefix everything I'm saying by, you know, I, I think, and I, and I think you, I think I'm coming from the same viewpoint as you, Mike. But I'll just uh, elaborate a little bit. The, the sort of 
knowing what you're up against is important, even though it's not all rainbows and clouds and all shiny, having an idea about what the difficulties are in the junior developer job marketplace, because um, it is a market essentially with supply and demand, can, can help you sort of understand where you need to watch out and, and where you might identify opportunities. Is that That's about right, isn't it, Mike? Yeah, exactly. It's more, it's more of just a... a it's more of exactly getting the rose-colored goggles off and when you're in a situation that might be a little bit negative, realizing that it's completely normal. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, like we we often, you know, history is written by the winners, right? They are still alive at the end to tell you what happened and they might inflate things or omit things. And likewise, there's this idea of like survivorship bias, which is that probably for every one developer you hear about that's been successful, and maybe this is the first part to your answer, Mike, for probably every one developer that's been successful and you think, gosh, how have they done it? They make it look easy. There's probably a hundred developers who tried and failed and, and maybe they've given up and they realized it wasn't for them. Maybe they'll resume in the future. So, so rest assured that if you're on this path, you're on a challenging but rewarding path. I, I think some of the challenges, let me, let me, yeah, I, I think one of the challenges in recent years is this idea of experience inflation. And, I, and, and I'll give it to you in very practical terms, because I know you and everybody listening will understand what I mean when I describe the frustration of coming across an entry-level job that needs two or three years <laughs> experience, right? It wasn't always that way in IT, actually. Um, maybe entry-level jobs were more like six months experience, then one year, then one and a half, then two years. I, I think the sort of uh, sweet spot now that a lot of jobs are looking for is two or three years experience, much like inflation in the economy that goes, everything gets a bit more expensive every year. The sort of barriers to entry has got a little bit higher every year as well. And I and I understand, and I'm not someone who goes like deep into the data necessarily. This is this data is often coming from like hiring platforms that have the ability to actually assess the data and, and scrape and parse and come up with analyses. Um, I'll try and link the specific report for you to link to your audience as well. Um, but, but the idea basically being that the barriers to entry to computing is quite low, which is both a blessing, right? Because there's no one who can tell you that you can't do it. You need an internet connection and a computer, and that's hugely liberating. There is enough free resources out there to learn the programming parts. And there is a humongous, incredibly supportive community that pay things forward, regardless of what you're willing to pay. There are so many resources available, and that's a blessing. But also, there's a lot more people who are allured by the salaries in tech and the freedoms of tech that will try and get into the markets. And for that reason, employers sort of realize that their jobs are in a bit more demand, and they're for they can improve or increase the experience threshold for people um, in order to get the best candidate for the best price. Essentially, it's a bit sad to reduce it to like just purely economic terms, right? But it is in a sense a marketplace. That, that said, there are plenty of junior developer jobs, so, so don't be deterred. The, the other thing which I've, I've learned more about recently is this idea that when the pandemic happened, and this is sort of another topic completely, really, to answer your question, when the pandemic happened, you've heard about this thing called the Great Resignation, right? Like lots of people leaving uh, work because they've realized that to them, it wasn't what mattered in life. They wanted to wait the pandemic over. They wanted to be with family and things like that. Well, well, who do you think it is who is sort of resigning, right? It's probably not the people who absolutely need to work to meet their basic cost of living. It's probably the developers who are earning six-figure salaries who have some savings and can afford to do it. And, And for that reason, when the pandemic happened, two things happened. A lot of experienced developers left the market, which left gaps in teams, especially in places like Silicon Valley, where these senior engineers were working on specific problems and they were mentoring juniors. 
So without those senior developers in place, it's difficult to then go on and hire juniors because juniors can't fill that role, right? And they need the senior, in fact, to, to provide mentorship and things like that. The, the other thing which is sort of related is that a lot of uh, the world moved online, right? More socializing online, more sort of commerce online, more kind of entertainment online. And that's put a lot of pressure on companies to then scale their software. And I think as well, it's also represented a few markets opportunities. Like when pandemics and uh, recessions and things happen, there's normally a few winners, right? Who sort of capitalize on some of the changes in the world and they race with other companies to sort of be the first solution on the markets. And there are certainly some companies who are in that position. And because they're in that position, they're looking to hire senior developers who can help them get there reliably and quickly. And the final point, I suppose, is that when the pandemic happened, a lot of venture capitalists had like uh, ammunition to, 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 well, they had, they had money to spend basically, and they could invest in companies and therefore companies had more money to hire whoever they wanted. And frankly, if you've got a very specific mission, which might be to penetrate new markets or race your competitor to, to, a, uh, to a certain goal, you're probably going to hire the best possible people you can. And if you have the money to do it, then why not just hire the most senior developers and, and pay them these crazy salaries? And that's why sometimes on Twitter, you'll see things about how there's never been more demand for developers, but that they are actually specifically talking about senior developers. And Whereas most times when you jump jobs as a senior developer, you might expect a sort of 20% pay increase. Today, this is as much as 40 to 60%. Like it's very competitive out there for seniors. But while seniors seem to be in demand, there, there really isn't therefore that many seniors who are available to, to mentor juniors. I want to be very clear that this is in parts anecdotal. I don't think, I don't have like a huge spreadsheet or humongous data to present. This is something I learned from a blog post called Why No One Hires Programmers Anymore. And I'm very keen to link it so people can read and come to their own conclusion. But I do think it's interesting to be aware of. And I, I do think there are some ideas in that post which sound like they should hold water, like they, they sound sensible to me. Um, and, and then, yeah, so with that in mind, uh, not there not being many seniors, it's difficult for them to sort of bring up on board juniors. And, and likewise, some companies are sort of saying, okay, we'll hire juniors in the future because they feel like once they're a bit more established as a remote team or as a team that's now achieve their business goals, um, they can now sort of resume and hire juniors because they, they don't feel like there's a great shortage uh, of juniors. And so it's a little bit of a priority thing as well. And, and so that could be sort of a harsh reality of the industry right now. But as I say, that this, this is it's true that there's a lot of trends in, in, in job markets and especially with a remote sort of industry. Oh, and by the way, another sort of challenge, I think, is that when the pandemic happened, a lot of teams, a lot of companies, they, they were forced to work remotely. Like they really had no choice if they were to continue operating. And so while there are some companies that for years and years and years, think of the GitLabs and the base camps of the world, for example, uh, they were always set up to be remote. You, these don't represent most developer jobs. Most developer jobs are probably like things you don't really think about, like you know, dev teams and IT teams at law firms and stuff like that, for example. They, they just did not have the facilities to onboard new developers remotely, um, getting their systems connected to the intranet and so on. And likewise, it's a big, it's just a problem. Like it can be solved, it will be solved, but it's about prioritization. And it feels like companies aren't necessarily prioritizing the problem of helping new developers find success and onboard remotely. I, I think it's possible to be successful as a remote junior developer, by the way, but I, I do feel a little bit sorry that there isn't the same opportunities to like, you know, kind of congregate in the cafeteria and talk about ideas and pair program in person and things like that. But those opportunities will resume. And obviously the 
beauty of technology is that we're always innovating and there are new tools and ideas that will help us do that remotely um, should, should things remain this way, or at least in, in parts. Um, and so, yeah, that could be a sort of alarming thing to hear. But, but with that said, there are still lots of opportunities out there um, <clears throat> and, and you shouldn't feel too discouraged by, by any stretch of the imagination. I think it's just important to realize two things. Like the first is that may, maybe, maybe, I can't be too sure, but maybe that there are slightly more junior devs than there are junior dev opportunities. And with that said, companies are in a good position. At least they favor it because the onus is kind of on you to stand out. It's not on them to go and find the good in people and find the the most uh, promising reason to hire you. And so with that reality in mind, I think if I was to turn this into some practical advice, you really need to try hard to, to market yourself and, and convince employers of your value from the very beginning, from their first exposure, which could be your resume or your LinkedIn. You need to make it easy for them to help you as much as you possibly can. Um, and the other thing, of course, is... Uh, Oh, sorry, lost my train of thought again. Um, but I think I think you sort of see where, where I'm coming from with this. Like, it can be difficult out there, but there are still lots of opportunities, and it's important that you remain competitive. How how much uh, how much thought as a junior dev or someone trying to break in? How much thought should you put into these trends when applying? Because we'll often say, and I think we even mentioned something similar this episode is, you know, maybe don't necessarily worry uh, about what's on that, um, like the job posting itself. You know, maybe you could still apply or work toward getting the skills that are in job postings like the one that you want type of thing. But when you're in this, like, let's say you were in your journey and then pandemic hits and then this whole shortage happens and the great resignation and all this stuff happens, how much of that, but obviously it affects you, but how much of it do you need to worry about? Is this something where we should be, meaning junior developers should be really watching these trends and finding places to land jobs or fulfill their goals and learn how to navigate around trends like this? Or do you think that, like you said, most job markets just have trends, if not all job markets just have trends. And therefore, do you think that junior devs or any dev, I guess, should just be applying like normal, how much of like how much of this does do they need to worry about in the day to day application, if you will? It's a it's a very good question. I think first and foremost, you should focus on the things you can control, which is being the best candidate you can possibly be and and leveling up. Second of all, again, you can't really control these trends. And I don't think they change like every day, right? Like the observations are more likely to be made over quarters, if not years. And so I don't think stressing about it really, really serves you. I think you have to look for opportunities that look exciting to you. And just, and, and again, don't think about it like they're scarce and like they have to choose you of hundreds. It probably isn't like that in reality, because if you're the kind of person who's listening to a podcast like this, I'm willing to bet that you're the same kind of person who is going a little bit above and beyond that has that, you know, passion to, to code and to find success. And I think that's the kind of thing that's going to propel you forward. I, I It's hard to say, like, again, we always hear about the successful developers. It's often the, the, the more confident developers who will come on a podcast or onto a Twitter space or something. This is how we build our worldview. Um, but in reality, there are millions of developers now. And I think that when you post the job ad, many of the people applying are not going to be qualified. It's just very important that you make it easy for the recruiters or the hiring manager to see why you are likely a good candidate. And as I said, just focus on what you can control. Yeah, I like that. I, I think you, you nailed 
a lot of the negatives in the industry. And I, I think you also nailed the the counterpoint of, you know, you, you do do what you can and uh, focus on what you can control. And that's really the really, really important takeaway from all this is uh, when you're going through some of the negatives here, it's it's mostly stuff that you can't control. Like we could not control the COVID pandemic. It's just not something we can do. Uh, we can't control the fact that there is a lot of people vying for the jobs. But what you can do is one of the things by listening to this podcast, you're already standing out a little bit. You're already showing that you're willing to do something outside the box. You're willing to dive into the industry. You're willing to understand the terms. And that really shows something. But taking it steps further, like putting yourself out there a little bit more, writing blogs, getting your GitHub profile all together, all these things you can do to put yourself above some of the competition. So that's really our point here. When you're a junior developer, you got to... It's not one thing. It's not like one day you do one thing and that's it. You're done. No, it's it's your consistency throughout and your ability ability to learn from, you know, rejections, ability to delve into community, like find find the community around you to network with people that are in the industry. All of that will build up to something that will make it almost impossible to not hire you. That's what we're saying. And I think you can do it if you're listening to this right now. You're 100% can do it. And when you're going through some of the negatives of the industry, just know that there are tons of positives. Work from home, great salaries, uh, you know, ability to switch jobs. That might end at some point. But right now, it's crazy. Like uh, Alex was saying, you know, once you have that, you know, intermediate to senior level status, your job switching isn't only about like, oh, I want to go work at a better company. No, you're increasing your salary by 40%, by 50%, sometimes even more. Ability to create. I think one of the things that in development, like if you're a developer, a web developer, something that I really appreciate is the ability to create things and have them kind of last online, right? That's uh, my way of kind of expressing artistic freedom a little bit because I suck at art. This is a way I can actually do something with it. So all these these positives definitely outweigh, in my opinion, the negatives, at least for me. So again, Alex, I really appreciate you kind of talking about talking through the negatives with us because it's important to kind of get it from many different perspectives. And that's a, those are some some of those were actually ones that I've never heard of and didn't really think through until right now, uh, especially the fact that, you know, juniors aren't really being hired. It's all seniors kind of switching jobs. And the fact that the seniors that are, are being hired don't have time to mentor the juniors. Those are two big things that you have to be aware of and something that maybe you can change. If you're a senior listening to this, maybe you can somehow influence to kind of change for the better in the industry. But uh, before we... Uh, can I, yeah, can I quickly... Yeah. That, that's that's absolutely right. Like as a senior developer, you need to sort of replenish the well, so to think. I I, I am going to um, implore everybody and, and highly encourage you to link this like really high in the show notes um, because basically a lot of this insight is from someone named Gregory Witek. I think they're from Poland originally. They work in the Netherlands at Booking.com and they wrote this whole post on their website, notonlycode.org. And I got the pleasure of interviewing them on the Scrimba podcast. I, I saw the title and I was like, oh my God, that's scary. The title is why nobody hires junior developers. And, and what happens next. And, and I don't, I, I never want to present myself as like smarter than I am or anything. A lot of this insight is from Gregory, absolutely. And he expands on it in more detail and in a way that also shares his take on like what you can do about it. So would definitely recommend that. And, and just another thing you reminded me of is that, you know, Becoming a junior dev is just one route. If, you, if you're stuck in the box, you can always break out of the box, right? And you can be a freelancer and, and you can even start a product if you want to. Um, and, and just don't underestimate yourself either because you were talking about intermediate to senior levels. And the first thing I thought about was like, these sort of seniority titles are kind of rubbish anyway. I want to swear. Can I swear? Yeah, you can. 
yeah, they're bullshit. Like it's totally arbitrary. And it just so happens that when you enter the workforce, you're more likely to be labeled an intern or a junior or, or an associate or something like that. Um, Karen is an example of someone who was closer to being an intermediate dev than a junior dev, say, um, but probably didn't have the gumption to see himself as such. And you should never underestimate the value you can deliver to a company because, you know, let's look at this a different way. Like if you put yourself in the shoes of a company, they have to result, they have to respond to circumstance and they are struggling to hire senior developers. We know this in part because there's a very, um, there's someone named Gergay Oroz, who I would also be happy to like plug and I'd be happy if you linked them to. They, they tweet a lot of like industry insights for more senior developers. And he talks about Fang and things like that. And as, they, as we touched on a bit previously, some, some of these things trickle down, but not all. And so there are some insights which seem very believable that senior devs are getting paid more and there is a high demand for senior devs. Like it all seems very credible to me on the surface. He, he doesn't commentate as such on junior devs. So that leaves a bit of like observation for us. But you can imagine if you're a company and you're struggling to find senior devs externally, well, damn it, maybe now's the time to ramp up your training and help some of these intermediate devs graduate and ramp up and take more responsibility. Oh, but oh wait, they were taking care of a task that was suited for a junior. Well, we'll look at that. Now there's an opportunity for you, a junior, to come in and fill that void and bring value. So never underestimate the value you can bring and, and don't sort of hope, don't, don't latch on to any of the negative things because it is very difficult to analyze a job market. I've, I've wanted for months and ever since I started the podcast, I've wanted to be a person who can commentate on this because I think it's helpful. But despite sort of checking data on job boards and you know who have the privilege of being able to report that data thanks to their position and their platform, as well as speaking to hiring managers, it's very hard to arrive at like a, a firm conclusion that I feel comfortable sharing with people. You, you Just as much as you can't know what the bad things are, you can't always predict what the good things are too. And so the opportunity I just described is probably more feasible than you realize. I love it. Honestly, that, 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 those were good recommendations. I wrote them down. I put, I found the uh, Nobody Hires Juniors blog post. They will be in the show notes. So check those out and I'll reach out to Alex to get some more of the information that he talked about throughout this podcast. Before we wrap up though, Alex, I just want to go to where you're at right now, which is Scrimba. And we've talked about Scrimba on the podcast before. It's a really great learning platform. It's kind of like a, almost like a boot camp, but not a boot camp because it's much, much more affordable. It's on, at your own pace and it has a really, really interesting, uh, course platform like you built a kind of a custom course platform where you code along with the with the course which i really really appreciate um and i want to i want to give you the opportunity to talk about like what drew you into joining them and what made you decide to create the scrimba podcast well the true story honestly is that i learned about scrimba and I met Per, the founder, co-founder and CEO, many years ago when I worked at a startup called Pusher. Per was writing a lot on Medium, sharing sort of uh, tutorials about Flexbox and CSS, which, which was very good for Scrimba because Scrimba is a place where unlike a video, you can click and edit the code. You can also like restore the code from when you started. So you don't have to worry about breaking things. And when you're ready to resume a lesson, you just press play. The instructor comes back, their cursor appears. You're both editing the same file. It's a little bit like sitting next to your mentor in a way and pair programming on things. You can imagine for a very visual thing like Flexbox or Grid, how this was good for Scrimba, right? Another time I was working as a developer advocate and we were looking for some new customers to uh, and some new developers to try out one of our new developer products, which 
was like a chat API. So I reached out to Paris, said, oh my God, I love Scrimba. Because when I was learning to code on YouTube, I used to get so frustrated. I used to get so upset and it wasn't fair when they would jump in the video and say, hey guys, here's all the scaffolding I just created. It's you know, there for obvious reasons. And then they would go on and say, oh yeah, you know, download the zip file. Then you download the zip file and all the dependencies would be broken. And then you get to part two and they're like, yeah, I just changed a few things just to make it more readable. You know, nothing, nothing you have to worry about. I'm like, what the hell? I want to see the project evolve and see how. And so with Scrimbo, the fact that you could watch the project evolve from the beginning to the end and never have to worry about like broken dependencies and things like that. Like it truly resonated with me as a self-taught developer, like a drum. Going on from there, a few years later, um, I reached out to Perrin and said, you know, you know, I've loved Scrimba for years. I'd love to get involved. This is something I'm passionate about. So I, I personally find that my, my job hunting strategy, in, in a sense, is to find companies that I actually care about. Like, I would feel very happy contributing to, that I feel proud to have played a part in, and likewise, working with people I can look up to and learn from. And so there seems to be like a really great synergy there. So we reached out and took it from there. The, the sort of motivation behind the podcast was largely to sort of bring more stories to people who are learning to code, because as you touched on, Mike, knowing you're not alone, I think of so many things in life, right? Whether you're sad or depressed or anxious or struggling to learn to code, knowing you're not alone makes such a huge difference to your mental state. And it's only when you're in a good mental state, you can proceed to thrive. And so there's definitely that part of like being that sort of person in the background every week, consistently egging you on, bringing you uplifting stories. But I also think that so many things about how to find success as a junior dev are not obvious. In school, we learned that we are lucky to get a job. And if we apply to 50 companies, we might hit back from some, you should polish your resume. I still think you can find success by applying the traditional routes. But one thing I try and highlight based on my experience, and likewise from people I interview on the podcast, is that there are so many sort of alternative paths to success, and there are so many ways to grease the wheels. It might sound a bit discouraging if you have no idea where to begin, but sort of networking in a sense and finding a way to earn a referral to a company is one way you can sort of sidestep a lot of the filtering out that happens when you apply the traditional routes, for example. This is just one very specific, highly impactful, I hope, example. But when you listen to the podcast, I hope you're hearing other sorts of examples that might just, you know, spark an idea for you or give you, you know, a new idea about how to find success in your own career. And, and likewise, I have to be honest, like it's a fantastic opportunity for someone like myself to meet and have genuine, interesting, hopefully engaging conversations with people like yourself. And, and while we're here on your podcast, of course, it was a pleasure to speak with you, Mike and Matt. And, you know, I've had the pleasure of speaking with many others as well. I hope to continue long into the future. Yeah, absolutely, Alex, and really appreciate you coming on the podcast. And I, I really implore everyone to check out your podcast at scrimbo.com slash podcast. It, Scrimba as a platform is great, but your podcast itself is really important. And one of the big things I wanted to bring up in this entire show was your stories that you that you shared. If you were interested in those stories, those come from Alex's podcast episode. So go and check out those podcasts. There's plenty of episodes. I think you're on episode like almost 50 now, 48 uh, right. So there's tons to listen to. If you're done listening to our podcast, jump over there uh, or alternate whatever you decide. It's up to it, it's a completely up to you. Re again, Alex, it's awesome having you on. I'm sure we'll have you on again at some point in the future. Maybe we'll do another combo episode or something like that. Um, but again, it, it's been great. I want to give you back your time and uh, maybe speak to you again soon. Mike and Matt, thank you so much. It was I had a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for coming on. 
Well, I hope that you enjoyed that call as much as we did, but it is time to end. So remember that if you want to support episodes like this and this show just in general, you can go and check us out on Patreon. That is patreon.com slash HTML, all the things. Check out the tiers and give that a go. And many thanks to our $3 tier patrons, Sean from RabbitWorks JavaScript on youtube.com slash RabbitWorks JavaScript, Garrick from Local Path Computing and Web Design on localpathcomputing.com, Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital via blueblackdigital.com, Chris from Self-Made Web Designer via selfmadewebdesigner.com, Tim from The Web Hacker via thewebhacker.com, DL Ford from dlford.io, Vip Hashdash from Nine Block Media via nineblockmedia.com, Jason from Geek Life Radio via geekliferadio.com, Michael Curie from MC, MC Web Studio via mcwebstudio.ca, Magnus from YesWeb via yesweb.se, Jeff from Twitter via at the Rithic, or actually it's at the Jeff McHale, excuse me, it's a new it's a new Twitter handle, and finally, a new Patreon, I think for the first time ever, Edubloxians, game designed for kids. Check them out at edubloxians.com. Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform that you are listening to this on, and this outro will sign us off. You've been listening to HTML All The Things Podcast. Web development, web design, and small business. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings. And we hope you had some fun. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at HTML All The Things. And on Twitter at HTML Everything. Until next time, this is HTML All The Things. Signing off.